0: And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at With that being said, here's this week's teaching. There are some conversations in life that you never forget. Uh, for me, uh, one of them came about 10 years ago. I remember it vividly because I was sitting at a fantastic restaurant in Louisville, Kentucky called Hammerheads. Uh, if you didn't know about Hammerheads, now you know. Uh, best pork belly BLT that you will ever have in your life, which I didn't even know was a thing until I went there. But I was sitting there, and while the food was fantastic, the conversation at this particular uh, dinner was decidedly less so. Me and a few other pastors at the time were spending some time with a pastor of a much larger church. He was gracious enough to spend some time with us, answer some questions about leadership that we had. And somewhere along the line in the conversation, uh, the topic had turned to something that we call teaching team. It was something we had at the time at that church. It's actually a process that City Church still uses today, where a team of multiple people speak into everything that we teach up here on Sunday mornings. So every idea that you guys hear out of my mouth is, is considered and dissected and examined in order to make sure that we're being consistent with the scriptures, but also helpful in how we teach it. In fact, our teaching team approved this sentence, and this one, (laughs) and also this one. thought you guys would like that. Um, But this pastor that we were meeting with, while we thought teaching team was a great idea, uh, he was not a fan of the idea of teaching team, this older pastor. And we told him about it, and he responded immediately without even skipping a beat by saying, oh, that'll never work. I was a little bit caught off guard by his comment, partly because of how direct and blunt it was, but also because I felt like he was missing a key detail of what we said. This was not like a new idea we were considering. This was something that we had been doing for several years fairly successfully at that point. But he said it wouldn't work. And so we we wanted to be humble. We wanted to try to learn from him and what he was saying. So we just asked him, hey, what do you mean that'll never work to do a teaching team? And he responded that by saying in his judgment, quote, high caliber leaders would not want to submit themselves to a team where other people tell them what they can and can't say. That's stifling, he said. It's stifling to that leader. What if he wants to say something from stage and everyone else on the team thinks it's a bad idea? And internally, I was thinking, probably a bad idea. I didn't say it out loud, but I was thinking it, and I would say this guy that we met for dinner on this particular night is sort of representative of a certain brand of leadership within the church. The idea being that leaders should be these aggressive, decisive, bold pioneers, and apparently above all else, they shouldn't have to submit or listen to anyone who opposes them. But just a broad survey across evangelicalism right now would seem to tell you that that style of leadership has not always taken us to good places. In fact, sometimes it seems like it takes us to very bad places repeatedly. There are entire blogs and podcasts devoted to the spectacular failures of that style of leadership. And in fact, about three years after that conversation with this guy at Hammerheads, I read in the news that that guy's lead pastor at his church had stepped down amid allegations of domineering and over-aggressive behavior. But my primary concern with all of that, with that leadership style, isn't just that it leads to bad places. I think really that's just a symptom of the problem. The problem is that it is an unbiblical approach to leadership. And and my concern is that within the church, when we highlight and elevate and reward that style of leadership, we are actually being more formed by the world around us than we are by the scriptures. And that's what I want us to get into today. Because Jesus is also very concerned about that. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 20, the passage that you just heard read. Matthew chapter 20. If you're newer to our church, we have been walking through the book of Matthew together for a while now, just sort of story by story, line by line. In this section of the book, Jesus is talking specifically about relationships within the church, relationships within the kingdom of God. And today, his attention is going to turn to how leadership, power, and authority operate ...within the kingdom. I think there's plenty in here for us to glean from, but we've got a lot to cover, so let's dive in. Pick it up with me in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 17. Here's what it says. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve, that is the twelve disciples, aside and said to them, "...we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death." and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. And on the third day, he will be raised to life. So this is at least the third time that Jesus has delivered a warning like this to his disciples about the things that are going to happen to Jesus in the near future. For all of Jesus's teaching and miracles and wonders and signs, this whole thing is building up to a day where he will be mocked, flogged, and then executed on a Roman cross. That's the moment that he's trying to prepare his disciples for. And the first time that Jesus gave the disciples a warning like this, It didn't go so hot. So he said he was going to die. One of the disciples said that he was going to stop the whole thing from happening. Jesus called that disciple Satan. It was a whole thing. Did not go well at all the first time that Jesus brought it up. The second time that he brings it up, at least in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us that the disciples were, quote, filled with grief at the warning that Jesus gave them. They were so overcome with sadness that they don't actually even know what to say in response. That's the second time. But this time, the third time that Jesus brings up this warning, the disciples apparently start making moves and requests. Take a look with me at verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, so Zebedee's sons here would be James and John, two of the disciples. Their mom came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. So the request being made here is for Jesus to appoint James and John, her two sons, to positions of authority and recognition within Jesus's kingdom. Seated at your right hand and your left, the language that she uses, would be kind of like saying she wants them to be Jesus's vice president and secretary of state, respectively. She wants them to be placed in positions of power and authority once the kingdom of Jesus arrives in its fullness. Now, she's not doing this behind her son's backs. It says in the passage that James and John are actually right there with her when she asked Jesus this question. But it's still her making the request. She's going straight to the man in charge and lobbying for her sons to get some recognition, which is mama bear doing mama bear things, right? Like that's what's happening in this story. It makes total sense to me. But take a look at Jesus's response to her request. Verse 22, you don't know what you are asking. Jesus said to them. Notice Jesus realizes the question isn't just coming from her, it's coming from James and John. It says, Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. So for reference here, drinking the cup was a common metaphor throughout the Old Testament in the Bible to refer to some sort of impending suffering and or punishment. So when Jesus says, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? He's saying, are you prepared to suffer like I'm going to suffer? To which James and John answer very quickly, yes, we are. Now, that's quite the eager response for people that just heard Jesus say he's about to be turned over to the authorities, captured, tortured, and killed. Their, their answer almost seems too eager here. So it, to me, is reminiscent of any time that I'm with my six-year-old at Target and he wants to buy the $100 set of Legos. You know, it's like the Star Wars Death Star or something. And he wants to buy the whole set even though it's 100 bucks. And I'll say to him, oh, I don't know, do you have $100 in your piggy bank that we can buy that with? And he will say without skipping a beat, yep, I do, I have $100. <laughs> and it always catches me off guard Because I'm like, one, good effort, like solid effort. Two, you absolutely do not have anywhere close to $100, and there's no way that we're buying this. That that kind of feels like James and John's response here on a much more serious note, right? They, They answer very confidently, saying that they are prepared to do something that they are in no way prepared to do at all. And I know that because even after Jesus' resurrection, James and John are with the rest of the disciples, terrified and hiding away in a locked room. So they talk a big game here in the story, but they don't actually understand what they're signing up for, which is actually what Jesus says when they first ask it. But what's fascinating to me is that at the same time, James and John end up being accidentally prophetic with their answer, which Jesus actually alludes to next. Take a look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. In other words, you will suffer much like I am going to suffer. But Jesus says, to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places, those positions of power and authority that you're asking for, those positions belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. So Jesus confirms that James and John will indeed suffer, much like he is going to suffer, but the positions of authority that they're after aren't actually his call to make. They're not Jesus' call to make. Those are selected only by God the Father. Now, Quickly here, I I want you to notice something with me. I I want you to observe the the deference that Jesus models towards the Father. Do you see that in the passage? We're actually gonna come back to this a little bit later, but to me, this is one of the most profound mysteries of what theologians call the Trinity, that, that God the Father and Jesus the Son are completely united in purpose and in intention. They're completely equal in every way, and yet Jesus chooses to submit to the Father on numerous occasions throughout his life, throughout his ministry. We read elsewhere that that God the Father gives Jesus the name that is above every name, all power, all authority on earth, and yet here we read that Jesus willingly submits to his Father's authority. Do you see that? It's almost as if leadership and power and authority function differently in the kingdom of God. But that is to get ahead of ourselves a little bit. For now, let's keep moving through the passage because Jesus has a bit of a problem on his hands as a result of this conversation with James and John and their mother. Look with me at verse 24 in the passage. When the 10, that is the other 10 disciples, heard about this, They were indignant with the two brothers who asked. The the other disciples hear about what James and John ask for, and they are not happy about it at all. Now, it would be noble if they were mad because of how inappropriate and presumptuous the request from James and John was. But that's not it. The disciples aren't mad because James and John did something wrong. The disciples are mad because it wasn't their idea to do. Do you see that? They're thinking they shouldn't have asked Jesus to be in charge. I should have asked Jesus to be in charge. I'm really mad that they thought of it before me. So now everybody's pointing fingers at everybody. Everybody's suspicious of everyone else. I'd like to think that at least one of the disciples at this point makes a passive-aggressive comment about how James and John got their mom involved in the whole situation. You know the drill, right? Like you've seen this situation play out before. The whole situation just devolved right? It's a mess. So in response, Jesus does what he often does when there's conflict and confusion, which is that he uses all of this as a teaching moment for the disciples. And these verses we're about to read is actually where I want to focus the majority of our our attention this morning in this passage. Look with me starting in verse 25. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. I want, I want to read that again, and I want you to read it with me out loud. This is a very important phrase in this passage. Read it with me. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you, must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave just as the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many so jesus's point here is very simple he says that the reason the disciples are arguing over who gets to be in charge is because they've misunderstood what being in charge is about in the kingdom They have modeled, the disciples have modeled their understanding of power and authority after, quote, the Gentiles, which is Jesus' way of saying the rest of the world outside of the kingdom of God. The, The way the world does power and authority is that whoever is great is in charge, and those people who are in charge wield their authority by having everybody else serve them Orient themselves around them. These people throw their weight around when they're in charge, right? They impose their will, so to speak, on everybody else around them. That is the worldly approach to leadership, power, and authority. But Jesus follows that observation with this crucial sentence that we read out loud. Not so with you. That might be how authority operates in the world, but that is not how authority operates in the kingdom. Not at all. In the kingdom, the person who wants to be great should take the position of a servant to everyone else. Whoever wants to be first should function as if they are last. Now, notice that this is not a new idea at all, even just in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the very first passage in this section of Matthew, back in chapter 18, Jesus says that whoever wants to be great in the kingdom should take the lowly position of a child. Marcus actually pointed out for us in that teaching that in the ancient world, children and slaves were pretty much on the same level, sociologically speaking. So Jesus has been trying to show his disciples this for at least the past three chapters of Matthew. He's been trying to show them that greatness in the kingdom is not about being first. It's about seeing yourself as last. Well, what he's saying is still not registering with the disciples. They're still vying for position and power and influence. They're still arguing about who is the greatest and who gets to be first. They are still very blind to the way that they have been formed and shaped by the world around them, especially in their view of power and authority. They still do not get it. So here in Matthew 20, Jesus has just made it clear to all of them that he is about to be arrested, tortured, and then killed. Jesus is saying to them, hey, this is how power and authority looks in my kingdom. This is what greatness does. Not being served by others, but serving others to the point that I am about to give my very life for other people could there be a more stark contrast to the world's categories of power than Jesus? A man choosing to give up his very life for those around him. And yet the disciples respond to all of that by campaigning for power and authority and influence yet again. They are blinded by their desire for greatness. They are blinded to the very different kind of kingdom taking a very different kind of shape right before their eyes. Jesus wants to help them see it. But you know, it's interesting. Matthew doesn't tell us how the disciples respond to this teaching from Jesus. We don't get to to see that. I wish he did. I wish we could get a glimpse of them realizing their error and opening their eyes to how power and authority and influence truly operate in the kingdom of Jesus. But we don't get that in the story. What we do get is a story about two blind men. Let's read it through, and then we'll talk about how this story might connect to everything we just read. Verse 29. As Jesus and his disciples were leaving Jericho, A large crowd followed him. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on us. So Son of David here was a clear messianic title for Jesus. These blind men evidently know exactly who Jesus is. They believe that he's the Messiah, and they believe that because of that, he can help them in some way. Verse 31. The crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the louder, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called the men. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. Lord, they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight. And notice this next part, they followed him. Now, on the surface, I'll admit, this feels like a pretty random story about Jesus healing two blind men. Doesn't seem to have much to do with the ideas of leadership or power or authority, nor does it seem like it has much to do with the story that follows it in chapter 21. So we could read this story as just what it is on the surface, just one more story about Jesus healing people in the Gospel of Matthew. And don't get me wrong, if that's all this story is, it would be an incredible story for us to witness. We should never grow so accustomed to stories like this in the Bible that we fail to appreciate them for what they are. Amen? But at the same time, I, for one, am inclined to read this story as a little bit more than that, too. And I'm inclined in that direction for a couple of reasons. One, this is the only detailed description of a healing that we've read about for quite some time in the Gospel of Matthew. And two, if you know anything about Matthew's Gospel, you know that it is a literary masterpiece, right? The order and structure and composition of the book often communicate just as much as the content of the book. Does. In other words, Matthew doesn't put anything where he puts it in his gospel by accident. He, he doesn't look at his gospel and go, man, it really seems like I need a few more verses here to close out this chapter. Let's see, I've got this random story about Jesus healing two blind men. Let's put that in there. Maybe that'll fit. That's not how Matthew does it. He's far more intentional, far more deliberate, far more strategic than that. So here's my take on it, and this could be wrong. I'll admit, this this might not be what is happening, but to me, it makes a lot of sense, and I'm not alone here. I think this is a literal story about Jesus literally healing two blind men who ask for it. And I think Matthew places this story where he places it as a poetic conclusion to the conversation Jesus just had with his disciples. Let me explain what I mean. Jesus has just had a conversation with his disciples about how they still aren't understanding the kingdom correctly. They're still not seeing it. And more specifically, they're not seeing the nature of power and leadership and authority within the kingdom. We could even go so far as to say they are sort of blind to the reality of the kingdom. And Jesus wants to grant them the ability to see it more clearly. And then Jesus comes across two men in the story who are literally blind. To me, it's even made more interesting by the parallels between the two stories. So two disciples come to Jesus wanting authority. Two blind men come to Jesus wanting healing. Jesus asked the blind men, just like he asked James and John, what is it that you want? Jesus doesn't give the disciples what they want because it isn't his to grant. He does give the blind men what they want because it is his to grant. And then it says that these two formerly blind men, quote, follow Jesus here's what I think is being said. I think Matthew could be telling us that in the upside down unexpected kingdom of Jesus, sometimes disciples are blind and blind men become disciples. I think that could possibly be why this story is placed where it is placed in the gospel of Matthew. But even if not, like I said, That's that's a less authoritative part of this teaching. I just think it's interesting. I think it's kind of poetic how Matthew pieces it together, even if that's not the case. This passage still raises the question for us that we've been asking throughout the gospel of Matthew nearly every single week. And the question is, where am I not seeing the kingdom correctly? Where am I not seeing the kingdom correctly? What am I blind to, especially in this case as it relates to leadership and a power and authority in the kingdom? Where have I misunderstood what it means to be great, what it means to be in charge, and how might Jesus want to help open my eyes to those misunderstandings? I think Jesus' teaching on all of this changes quite a few things about our view of power and authority, and leadership. And I want to make sure that we see it in vivid color before we're done this morning. So I've got three things I want to set before you from this passage about how we might consider the teaching that Jesus just gave. First, I think this passage changes how we pursue authority. I think it changes how we pursue authority. So at the center of this passage is a rebuke from Jesus towards two of his disciples and their mom who are pursuing positions of authority. They want to be at Jesus' right and left hand, ruling and reigning and exercising authority over people. They want to function as leaders, in other words, the way that the world sees leadership. That's what they want. But Jesus' response to that request, I'll remind you, is first to tell them they don't know what they're asking. Two, to ask them if they are willing to suffer in route to that leadership. Three, tell them that the positions of power they're pursuing are not actually his to grant. And four, correct them to help them see what leadership is truly about. That is quite the stiff arm to their request if I've ever heard one. So it would seem That when people approach Jesus desiring positions of power and influence and authority, that Jesus' response often is, bare minimum, slow down. Slow down. Slow your roll. If you are eager to have a position of power and leadership and influence and authority, Jesus says, you may not fully understand what you're asking. Some of you in the room this morning are pursuing positions of power and authority and influence in your life. You are eager to be in charge. Maybe that's at work. Maybe it's at school. Maybe it's within the church. Maybe it's in the bizarre world of influence and prominence that is social media. I don't know what it is, but let's say you're here this morning and in one way, shape, or form, you are eager to arrive at a place of leadership and authority. You want the prestige that comes with it. You want the accolades. You want the recognition from others that a position like that would grant you. If that is you, I would just ask you to think critically about it first. Are there any of Jesus' cautions here to the disciples that you need to hear, that you need to wrestle with? Uh, I'll give you just a few of them. For starters, do you understand what you're asking for? Do you understand what you're asking for? Do you understand what comes with being in a position of leadership, power, and authority? It's not just the privilege of being in charge. It's also the burden of being in charge. Specifically, second, do you understand that leadership is frequently accompanied by suffering? Frequently accompanied by some type of suffering. When you are in charge, a lot of things get aimed at you as a result of being in charge. Being in charge often means that you become a punching bag for people's deepest frustrations with their life or with the organization that you're in charge of. Are you prepared for that? Do you know how to handle it without exploding on the people around you? Third, do you understand where authority comes from Do you understand where authority comes from? The book of Romans tells us that, quote, there is no authority except that which God has established. Do you understand that he assigns and therefore knows who should be in authority? And do you trust then that if he doesn't want you in a position of authority right now, there may be a reason for that? And lastly, do you understand what authority is for? Do you understand what authority is for? because if you only want to be in charge because it feels good for you to be in charge, I hope you realize that is a recipe for disaster for you and for the people that you will be leading or you will be in authority over, for those who will be impacted by your leadership. So I just wanna ask, are there any of those cautions, any of those questions that you need to wrestle with personally if you are eager to be in a position of power or authority, or influence. It may be worth praying through those on your own time. So This passage changes the way that we pursue authority. At the very least, I think it gives us a little bit of a pause when asking for a position of prominence or influence. Second thing from this passage, it changes how we view authority. I think it changes how we view or how we approach those in authority. This one's going to be a fun one. Um, I don't know if you've picked up on this, but we are not huge fans of authority in our society. In general, we we tend to be pretty cynical towards it. Uh, I've met quite a few people at this point in my life, and you know what I've discovered? Approximately 95% of all people think that their boss at work is an idiot. Isn't that crazy? Every person in the world, almost, who is a boss, apparently is an idiot. But you know what else is interesting? I've found that of all the people I know as well that hold positions of power and authority at work themselves, almost none of them think of themselves as idiots. And almost nobody who's under authority thinks of themselves as idiots, which makes me wonder, just maybe if our problem is a little bit more with the position of authority over us itself than it is about the specific people in those positions of power. In general, our view as a society is that if someone is in a position of authority, especially authority over us personally, they're probably awful human beings. Or bare minimum, they're a little more awful than we are, right, all of our bosses are idiots, All of our professors are incompetent. All of our politicians are corrupt. All of our parents are overbearing. Church leaders are all hypocrites. Are you seeing a pattern here at all? I think we might just have a problem with authority. Or as I heard someone say once, very fittingly, we're great with the idea of authority as long as the person in authority is us. Now, All of that said, I want you to see that on some level in this passage, Jesus does offer a critique of bad authority. I don't want us to miss that. He says, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over people, but not so with you. That's not how I want you, my disciples, to approach authority. That is an implicit critique of worldly authority. Do you see that in the passage? But Jesus is not like some of us. He does not oppose the idea of authority in and of itself. In fact, as we already observed, in this very passage, Jesus models a respect for authority. He says that who gets to sit at his right hand and his left, that's not up to him. That's up for the Father to decide and him to accept. Jesus models deference to authority. And throughout the New Testament, we are actually encouraged to show a generous posture towards those in authority. First Timothy tells us to pray for and thank God for kings and all of those in authority. First Peter tells us to honor and even submit to human authority over us. The book of Hebrews tells us, and I get that I'm about to lose a lot of you here, to have confidence in, submit to, and even imitate your church leaders. I'm not going to say anything about that. I'm just going to let it be. And I could go on, right? Now, I want you to understand there are limits and parameters to those types of instructions in the Bible. Those commands and those instructions are not absolute. And we have done entire teachings before where we've nuanced all of that out and helped us understand it rightly as far as what it is and isn't saying. But listen, the Bible does not take the same hypercritical hyper-cynical posture towards all authority that some of us do. We are free, even encouraged, to be discerning about good and bad authority. But if you have an automatic problem with any authority in any setting, you're going to have a real issue with the scriptures. And if that's you, you're not going to be much of a fan of Jesus either, because Jesus both is an authority to each of us, if we're followers of Jesus, and Jesus models submission to authority throughout his life. Authority in Jesus's mind is not automatically bad, corrupt, or dangerous. Authority is a tool to be stewarded and used to proper ends. Do people misuse and abuse authority in the world? Absolutely. Does that mean that all authority is bad? Absolutely not. Which means our default posture towards authority should not be opposition. Discernment, sure, but not hostility. In fact, uh, do this with me, just as a sort of thought experiment to check where we're at on this stuff. I want you to think back with me over the last three bosses or supervisors or employers that you've had in your life personally. If you haven't had that many yet, just pick some people in authority over you recently. A teacher, a parent, a pastor, something like that. I'll give you a second. The last three people in positions of authority over you in your life. Okay, with those three people in mind, can you name anything that one of them did that benefited you as a human being or as an employee? Anything at all? Something they did that developed you or helped you or challenged you towards growth in some small way. Can you think of anything at all that they did that benefited you? Okay, if you can't think of a single thing and be appreciative for it, I would be willing to bet that you're probably deceived. I think you've actually just predetermined that all authority in your life is bad. I'm not saying they didn't do unhelpful things. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying based on the last three people, if you can't name a single positive thing that any of them did, I think you're actually deceived. I think you've actually just mistrusted all authority in your life. And I'm not saying you don't have reasons for that. I'm not saying there hasn't been hurt in your life that's led to that. But I am saying that Jesus wants all of us to reconsider that this morning. He wants us to rethink how we view and how we relate to people in authority. I think it's massively important. I would say, especially for my generation in the room and younger, that we wrestle with that as followers of Jesus. And then third, last one, I think all of this changes how we exercise authority. How we exercise authority. Lastly, what Jesus makes clear in this passage and really throughout the Gospels is that good authority exists primarily for one thing, to serve others. To serve others, that's what authority is about. Jesus says, if anyone wants to be great, They must act as a servant to those around them. Authority in the world means that everyone else orients themselves around you and what you want. Authority in the kingdom means that you orient yourself around others. You serve others, you help others, you contribute to the greater good around you using your position of power and authority if you have it to that end for those purposes let me put it to you like this. Um, If at any point you find yourself as a follower of Jesus in a position of authority or influence or power, and in that moment you start thinking to yourself, good, we're going to finally do things my way around here. Now, finally, people are going to have to do what I want them to do. People are going to finally have to listen to me. People are going to finally have to orient themselves around my ideas and my wishes and my preferences. If that is your posture when acquiring a position of authority, I just got to say, watch out. Watch out. Because that brand of leadership, that style of leadership is far more shaped by the world's definition of authority than it is by the kingdoms. In the kingdom, authority is not expressed by expecting everyone else to orient themselves around you and your ideas. But instead, in Jesus's words, authority in the kingdom is about taking the posture of a servant. In Jesus's words, taking the posture of a servant just as the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So to elaborate on all of this, just a tad more as we close, I wanna just read over you another passage with me. We'll put it up on the screen. This is from Philippians chapter two. If you've been around City Church very long, you've probably heard us talk about this passage a lot. It's very central to how we think about and how we approach our relationships with one another. But really, most theologians would say, This is just Paul, Philippians 2 is Paul just riffing on and elaborating on and reflecting on Jesus' teaching in places like Matthew 20. Paul is trying to put into words the baffling nature of how Jesus saw leadership and authority. Let me read this over you. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Jesus, who was and is God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Think about that. He didn't consider that status something that he should use to selfish or self-oriented ends. Instead, he chose to empty himself, taking the position and posture of a servant, even to the point of dying a brutal death on a Roman cross. He does that all for the purpose of serving and loving and giving himself to the around him. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection is the ultimate fulfillment of what he's been talking about for the past three chapters of Matthew. Whoever is first will be last, and whoever is last will be first. In the kingdom of Jesus, whoever exalts themselves will be humbled. Whoever humbles themselves And it is by looking to Jesus on the cross who came not to be served, but to serve that we receive the ability by the Holy Spirit to do the same. That is what leadership, power, and authority was meant to look like in the kingdom of God. May the Spirit help us all who claim to follow Jesus embody that posture in every aspect of our lives. Let me pray.